Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, the book of Revelation, chapters 13 and 14. Now we spent uh, a, a lot of time in Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to finally conclude it today and get into chapter 14. Uh, chapter 13 is so very full of dramatic events and mysterious symbols that uh, <clears throat> dominate Christian thought about this coming apocalypse. And as a result of that, it's required a considerable amount of our time. And there's probably little more dramatic than the matter of the Antichrist demanding and enforcing that everyone in the world take a mark on his hand or his forehead. Otherwise, they can't buy or sell. Now, so acquiring the basics of life then become impossible for those who refuse the so-called mark of the beast. Now let me say, it's right up front, because I have no doubt I'll get questions and emails about it, that not every last living person in every last remote place on earth will find themselves in this predicament. Many places still exist that buying and selling is a matter of bartering. They don't even have what we would call cash. And the populations there are so small and so inconsequential to someone who wants world control that they will likely escape such an edict. But for everybody else, the 99.9%, this mark is going to be needed for survival. And let me also mention that in the Bible, Terms like all and everyone in the world are not absolutes. They are approximates. Those terms are used similarly to how we use them today. That is, we mean the vast majority, just short of unanimous, but not every last human being or thing without exception. Let's reread the last few verses of, of uh, Revelation chapter 13 together. We're going to start at verse 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1545. So Revelation chapter 13, we're going to start reading at verse 16. Also it forces everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, preventing anyone from buying or selling unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is where wisdom is needed. Those who understand should count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person, and its number is 666. Now last week, we discussed that because this is Satan behind the Antichrist's edict, then underlying his plan to retain power over the earth is deceit and mockery of God. 
So the mark that he demands upon the world's population is a counterfeit of the mark, of, of the seal that God put upon the foreheads of the 144,000 witnesses back in Revelation chapter 7. But it's also a, making a mockery of God's commandment in Deuteronomy 6 to teach the Torah, which Revelation 13 refers to as the covenant, to your children and to put God's laws in your heart and to tie them, it says, upon your hand and upon your forehead. God wants us to do these things either in actuality or symbolically because he wants to be the continual center of our lives. Naturally, Satan wants to replace God as the center of our lives. So he wants his mark upon us as a reminder of his diluted glory and greatness and his authority over us. Now while in our era, the elite, the ruling class, and the wealthiest among us usually live by a different set of rules than the rest of us, Verse 16 tells us that even the great and the rich will be forced to wear this mark of the beast. Why? Because while on the surface the mark is a means of control over our finances and our livelihoods, underlying it all is that it is a mark of spiritual allegiance to Satan and therefore a rejection of God Almighty. So no one then can refuse the mark and live. Then verse 18 speaks up about perhaps one of the most debated passages in the entire New Testament. The meaning of the number 666. So we're going to dive into that question. We're going to see what we can conclude. Now to begin, it's important that we get the overall picture that is called for with the first words of this verse that say, this is where wisdom is needed. Wisdom is, biblically speaking, godly. That is, the source of true wisdom is always divine. So we can conclude from this that only God worshipers are going to have the wisdom to not be taken in by the lies and the awesome exhibition of power and knowledge that the Antichrist and his evil followers are going to put on worldwide display. To all others, it's going to seem like a no-brainer to follow this messianic figure who has abilities and intelligence and leadership like no one in history ever has. Let me give you an illustration of this. As a person whose corporate life involved the world of high tech, I can appreciate the learnedness, the intelligence, the intelligence, the, the creative ideas that engineers and scientists and mathematicians have put forth that has dramatically changed the world we live in. On the other hand, 
We have, since the era of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, put more and more of our trust into the brain power of our engineers and scientists and mathematicians. Today, when something is said to be scientifically proven, then all debate is to end. If an expert with a PhD says something is so, then we are to accept his or her word and take it as ironclad proof. This has had the exact desired effect that the Enlightenment era academics and philosophers intended. The mysteries of God have been replaced by the assurances of human intellect. No longer is science the discovery of what God has created as it once was. It is the standard now to which the Bible must be measured up or be discarded as myth, legend, and superstition. All one has to do is research the persons who write modern critical Bible commentary that our various seminaries teach to future pastors and and ministers and we find out that relatively few of them believe in God let alone Christ rather they approach their Bible research as a scientific study of ancient Jewish literature and history faith the belief in miracles the acknowledgement of the supernatural the concept of infallibility play no role in their lives or in their area of academic discipline I mean I could go on for hours about scientists in various fields of study who make bold statements of supposed fact about humanity, biology and the cosmos that in reality don't even rise to the level of sound theories but their intellect and their academic credentials are so valued that to express skepticism to their ideas is tantamount to heresy or worse stupidity I tell you all this which most of you already recognize because when the image of the beast speaks and the Antichrist brings about peace among nations that has perhaps never before been seen in history and he sets forth his team of scientific experts and philosophers to explain why things are now as they are very few people will be able to avoid being seduced by their intellect and their seeming irrefutable facts. We are already well primed and conditioned for just such a scenario to occur. Now interestingly, the identification and the meaning of the number 666 as it is associated with the beast, the Antichrist, is going to be something that will be misunderstood by all the world's inhabitants except 
for those who have godly wisdom. And who is that? True believers. When the Antichrist appears, world experts will explain it as one thing. True believers will see it as something else. I want to be clear. As of the year of our Lord 2019, we do not yet have enough information and history has not yet reached a milestone by which we can confidently decipher the intent and purpose of 666 other than to know that it has thoroughly evil anti-God attributes. You know, by far the most widespread belief about, among Bible academics is that 666 comes from biblical gematria. Now, gematria is the study of numbers that are assigned to letters of an alphabet and then the words that they form. For instance, most ancient languages did not have numbers separate from alphabets. Rather, a letter represented both a sound and a number. Hebrew operates like that. An aleph is a one, a bet is a two, a gimel is a three, so on. Ancient Greek is the same. So every word also had a number value arrived at by adding up the individual letter values. And thus, especially the religious mystics looked for hidden or secret meaning behind the words by delving into the numbers that those words represented. So at the end of verse 17 we read the name of the beast or the number of his name. And those who study and put credence into Gematria say that the phrase the number of his name means that when you add up the number value of each letter in the beast's name, it will total 666. Easy enough, right? Not really. I have a question for you. What language are we going to use to arrive at the number of his name? Is the spelling of his name to use the Hebrew alphabet? Since it's the New Testament, will it be the Greek alphabet? Or maybe Aramaic, which was very widespread in John's era. How about Latin? Or will it be the language of the country from which the Antichrist emerges? You know, many translators today act as though it has to be English. German translators of decades ago naturally figured it would be German. Now even though English and German and most other Western languages use entirely different words, most do use a common 26-letter alphabet. So which of these are we to choose? Since it will, of course, change the number value of each word. I hope you see this problem. You know, certain forms of Nero's name 
can arrive at the number 666 depending on the language you use. Other academics have shown how Napoleon's, Hitler's names can be manipulated to add up to 666. Again, the language playing the key role. Now I'm sure most Hebrew roots folks say, well of course it will be the Hebrew alphabet that will be used to arrive at the correct name. Even if that's correct, then which Hebrew alphabet? Because that has changed over the centuries. Therefore, I have serious doubts that the number of his name points us towards gematria as we think of it today as the means to finding a solution. I mean, perhaps the number 666 is purely symbolic. I mean, the number 7 is generally agreed to be a divine number that symbolizes God or, or godly activities, and the number 6 is said to be the number of man, of humans, and human activity. Thus, triple sixes represent the evil trio of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, as opposed to triple sevens representing the divine trio of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And indeed, whether it is gematria, symbolism, or something else, verse 18 does say, for it is the number of a person. Pretty confusing, isn't it? Charles Feinberg, fine scholar, makes this observation that for now probably represents about the best we can do. He says, it is almost impossible to list the number of suggestions for 666 all the way from Nero and ancient Rome to persons in this day. Probably the most that can be gleaned is that since seven is the biblical number of completeness, six, which falls short of it, is man's failure at its worst. Man's worship of man is indeed spiritual insanity to the highest degree. I realize that many intelligent and thoughtful revelation expert, experts and book authors have come up with all kinds of innovative solutions to this. I think this in itself says that we're still pretty short of the needed information and historical perspective that is yet to arrive to come to any sort of concrete and confident conclusion as to the identification of the Antichrist as it relates to the number 666. Could one of them be right? Well, somebody eventually wins the lottery. This search for the meaning and person of 666 has spawned quite a number of superstitions and taboos, and not just within Christianity. I mean, I have to admit, I probably wouldn't ever locate Seed of Abraham Ministries anywhere where the address began with 666. <laughs> probably wouldn't want a phone number like that either. So the bottom line is that we just don't know. And we just hate that. 
We need to have the humility to accept that even though we live in the so-called information age, we can't always figure out the mysteries that God has set before us. And this is almost always because it is not yet time for us to know. For sure, at some point in the end times, we're going to be able to know. Likely, it will only become apparent with the actual appearance of the Antichrist. But it will be believers who discern it correctly. It will not come from human intellect. Rather, as verse 18 so plainly says, it's going to come from wisdom. Godly wisdom. Let's move on to Revelation chapter 14. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. And if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that will be on page 1545. Revelation chapter 14, we'll read it all. Then I looked. And there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of rushing waters and like the sound of pealing thunder. The sound I heard was also like that of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living beings and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been ransomed from the world. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been ransomed from among humanity as first fruits for God and the Lamb. On their lips no lie was found. They are without defect. Now next I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with everlasting good news to proclaim to those living on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And in a loud voice, he said, Fear God, give Him glory, for the hour has come when He will pass judgment. Worship the One who made heaven and earth, the sea, the springs of water, And another angel, a second one, followed saying, She has fallen, she has fallen. Babel the great. She made all the nations drink the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Another angel, a third one, followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will indeed drink the wine of God's fury poured undiluted into the cup of his rage. He will be tormented by fire and sulfur before the holy angels and before the Lamb. And the smoke from their tormenting goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. Those who worship the beast in its image and those who receive the mark of its name. This is when perseverance is needed on the part of God's people. Those who observe his commands and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. Next I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, 
How blessed are the dead who die united with the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, now they may rest from their efforts for the things they have accomplished. Follow along with them. Then I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was someone like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Start using your sickle to reap, because the time to reap has come. The earth's harvest is ripe. And the one sitting on the cloud swung his, uh, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And then out from the altar went yet another angel who was in charge of the fire. And he called in a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle. Gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because they are ripe. The angel swung his sickle down into the earth, gathered the earth's grapes, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's fury. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridles for 200 miles. Here... <laughs> is an excellent example of the downside of dividing a Bible book into chapters. We have concluded chapter 13, taken a deep breath, and now we turn the page to chapter 14 with the expectation of starting a new subject. However, because of the break at the end of chapter 13, we can miss the connection between its last couple of verses and the first verse of chapter 14. Let's go back and look at 13. Let's go back and look at 13 for just a quick second. This is where wisdom is needed. Those who understand should count the number of the beast for it is the number of a person and his number is 666. There should have been no pause. No stop. No chapter break. And... That wasn't the way it was originally. We have been discussing the beast, Satan, requiring a mark on the foreheads or hands of everyone in the world. And the number of the beast's name is 666. But immediately to start chapter 14, what do we read of? We read of the Lamb standing with the 144,000 who God marked on their foreheads to set them apart for himself. So we have this intended contrast of the beast demanding worship or else death versus God setting apart 144,000 who had voluntarily devoted themselves to him by their love. We also have God putting a mark on the foreheads of these 144,000 to protect them from evil versus Satan requiring a mark on the foreheads of those who must submit to his evil or they will be denied the basics of life. Now we have met all of the characters mentioned in this first verse before. So their identification has already been established. 
The Lamb is Christ. The 144,000 are believing Israelites. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Father is, of course, Jehovah God. But we also now encounter another important term, Mount Zion. Zion, the term Zion is used many times in the Old Testament. Some count as many as 155 times. And it is usually used to refer to the true ideal city of God. And at other times to the people living there. Now the underlying nature of Zion is that it is the name for Jerusalem or a particular piece of geography within Jerusalem that God will rule over after it's been redeemed. Psalm 2, which is agreed among Jews and Christians is a messianic psalm, uses the term Zion in a way that kind of helps us grasp its significance. In Psalm 2, verses 6-8, through eight, we read, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree. Adonai said to me, You are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. Now further, in the Old Testament, we find the term Mount Zion used 19 times, of which 9 directly connect to the surviving remnant of Israel being delivered and redeemed. The term only appears 7 times in the entire New Testament. But 5 of those are merely quotes from Old Testament passages. Now interestingly, here in chapter 14 is the only mention of Zion in the book of Revelation. In the New Testament, Mount Zion is a place of rejoicing, celebrating, safety, and security. The best way for us to look at it is as reflecting the spiritual condition of Jerusalem. And then by extension, the spiritual condition of the people living there. In the latter part of the end times, at about the time of the return of Messiah Yeshua. An important question to ask here is this. Are the Lamb and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion in spirit or in physical bodily form? Now many academics say it has to be in spirit because in their view the 144,000 do not actually represent what chapter 7 says they do. Twelve named tribes of Israel. But rather they represent the worldwide church. And of course those many hundreds of millions of Gentile believers could never fit into Jerusalem. But I take the identification of the 144,000 as believing Israelites literally. 
And there is no reason to think that they're not standing in Jerusalem, literally and physically, along with a physical Christ in this verse. Now while I don't want to get into it here and right now, clearly Christ, the Lamb, and the 144,000 were in spirit form and in heaven back in chapter 7. But now they have been returned to earth, to Mount Zion, we're told, in physical form. And I assume, without being dogmatic about it, that the physical form that they come in will be superior to the physical form they had at their deaths. Some Christian commentators refer to this superior physical form as a glorified body. A term, as far as I'm concerned, is as good as any to describe what we certainly cannot describe beyond speculation. If the Lamb and the 144,000 were not actually standing on Mount Zion in some physical form, then what we read in the remainder of the chapter makes little sense. And so we all all are left to interpret its meaning allegorically. And that means we can make nearly anything out of it that our imaginations can produce. Now while verse 1 is a scene taking place on planet Earth, verse 2 is taking places in heaven. Because John says the sounds he hears are coming from heaven. So there are three sets of sounds that John speaks about. First is the sound of rushing waters. Second is the sound of peals of thunder. Third is the sound of harpists playing their harps. In the first chapter of Revelation, the sun was said to have a voice like rushing waters. And later the father was said to have a voice like peals of thunder. The 24 Levite elders played harps. So we have a concert of joyful noise coming down from heaven, celebrating and perhaps announcing the return of Christ and the 144,000 to a redeemed Jerusalem called Zion. However, let's not jump to conclusions as to who exactly in heaven was singing and playing. For one reason, the term like is placed before the description of each sound. Verse 3 says that the song that was being sung was a new song. Now, when we hear of a new song in the Bible, these are victory songs concerning momentous events along the timeline of redemption. We heard a new song when Moses led the fleeing Israelites across the Red Sea back in Exodus 15. New songs are sung in several psalms, including 33, 40, 96, and others. In Revelation chapter 5, there was a new song for the Lamb who was worthy to open the scroll with seven seals. 
and another new song for the overcomers and conquerors in Revelation chapter 7. Now with this new song of Revelation chapter 14 and the reappearance of Christ on earth, yet another critical milestone of redemption has arrived. Whomever is making those sounds... We're making them from before the throne of God and before the four living beings and before the elders. So none of these were making those sounds, but rather other spiritual beings were the source. Even more, notice that although we're told that, this, that there was a new song, unlike the other new songs in the Bible where we're given their content of that song, in this case we're not. The song itself is left a mystery. And verse 3 says that only that 144,000 are able to discern it. Interesting. Now verses 3 through 5 give, give us a partial description, perhaps maybe a better um, a list of attributes of this group of 144,000. First it says they've been ransomed from the world. Second, they have not defiled themselves with women. Third, they are virgins. Fourth, they follow the Lamb, Christ, wherever he goes. Fifth, they have been ransomed from among humankind as first fruits for God. Sixth, no lie was found on their lips. Seventh, they are without defect. Now, of course, the first thing to notice is exactly seven attributes are listed and seven is the ideal number and the number of wholeness and completion. So these 144,000, even though they are human, are now whole and perfected in the Father's eyes. Now while we believers who are alive are to strive for perfection, and if we allow it, we will go through a process of being perfected, will never achieve wholeness or perfection on this earth because we still wear these corruptible bodies of flesh. But these 144,000 left those corruptible bodies behind when they died and went to heaven but have now returned to Zion in incorruptible bodies. Now the first attribute of the 144,000, which is being ransomed from the world, says simply that these are believers. They trusted, they acted in faith, believing that the blood shed by Yeshua redeemed them. The second attribute is a more difficult one to discern. What does it mean they were not defiled by women? In no way does contact with a woman defile a male unless it is illicit contact? And besides, in that case, both male and female become defiled. Now, I'm not going to go through the list of possibilities that a number of scholars offer, but rather I'm going to offer you the explanation that I feel confident in. For those who follow Torah class and Seed of Abraham Fellowship, you know that I've spoken on many occasions about holy war and that the coming war of Armageddon is but the continuation of the holy war 
that was initiated by God when he fought Pharaoh for the possession of God's chosen people, the Israelites. So when Israel went into the land of Canaan, it would involve a holy war for the land, and so a number of holy war rules were set down by the Lord. One of the most interesting of those rules was the law of harem. In English, the law of the ban. Whereby the spoils of holy war belong to God. Not to the Israelites themselves. The spoils were often turned over to God by destroying those confiscated objects, even including people. But a second fascinating holy war rule involved the soldiers. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and chapter 23 gives us these rules and regulations. The prophet Samuel adds a few more in 1 Samuel 21 and in 2 Samuel 11. A couple of these rules that directly impact this statement about the 144,000 having not been defiled by women were spoken by Samuel. Now in this first example, David is on the run from King Saul and he arrives at the tabernacle and he needs food for his men. So he gets into this conversation with the priest that's on duty there at the time. 1 Samuel 21 verses 5 and 6. So the Kohen, the priest, answered David, I don't have any regular bread. However, there is consecrated bread, but only if the guards have abstained from women. And David answered the priest, Of course women have been kept away from us, as on previous campaigns. Whenever I go out on campaign, the men's gear is clean, even if it's an ordinary trip. How much more than today, when they will be putting something consecrated in their packs? The second statement in Samuel has to do with King David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba, married at the time, by the way, to Uriah, who was perhaps David's greatest, most loyal general. We find this in 2 Samuel 11, verses 9 through 11. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's palace with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Haven't you just arrived from a journey? Why don't you go down to your house? And Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah stay in tents, and my lord uh, uh, Yoav and the servants of my lord are campaigning in the countryside. So should I go into my house to eat and drink and go to bed with my wife? As surely as you live, I would not do such a thing. So a Hebrew soldier anticipating battle was not to have intimate relations with his wife the night before the battle and depending on the situation maybe up to several days before the battle. See it's not that women were ritually unclean. Rather it is that since there's a divine commandment against having sexual relations with a woman before battle, then to disobey it means that that soldier has defiled himself with a woman. But for a few notable exceptions, all the wars that Israel fought were holy wars. So this rule was in play. 
So now this explains the third attribute of the 144,000 that they are called virgins. The first thing we think of when we hear the term virgin is, of course, of a female who's not had intimate relations with a man. Although the term applies just as well to a man who has never had intimate relations with a woman. However, the term has other uses. First and foremost, it is used in the Bible to mean ritually pure. So these 144,000 are ritually pure soldiers, virgins for Christ. The fourth attribute of following Christ wherever he goes reminds us of the four living beings in heaven that follow God wherever he goes. So these 144,000 are soldiers who are meant not only to fight, but to protect. The fifth attribute of being the first fruits among humanity for God has to be taken in a similar sense as Paul meant it when in Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16 he uses the term to mean the first to join the assembly of Christ followers. The law of Moses requires that the first fruits of all produced must be given to God. Jeremiah 2 says that Israel is the first fruits for God. In Jeremiah 2.1 begins, The word of Adonai came to me, Go and shout in the ears of Yerushalayim that this is what Adonai says, I remember your devotion when you were young. How as a bride you loved me. How you followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel is set aside for Adonai. The first fruits of his harvest. All who devour him incur guilt. Evil will befall them, says Adonai. So Israel, as first fruits, fits perfectly with the 144,000 who are said to be from where? The 12 tribes of Israel. Now the sixth attribute is they do not lie. Or better, considering the context, they express no deceit, no falsehood. This needs to be taken as connected to the seventh attribute, which is that they're without defect, or better, they're unblemished. That's a better word to use, unblemished. In Isaiah 53, one of the most astounding prophecies that speaks of the Messiah and his arrest and his death, in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, we read this, beginning at verse 8. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away. And none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people, who deserved the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was a rich man, although he had done no violence and he had said nothing deceptive. See, when this passage speaks of Christ not being deceptive, 
it is highly likely that it means it is in terms of not giving people false prophecies or false teachings. Because we find this same notion spoken of among the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. So there is this close relationship between uttering no false prophecy, no false teaching, and being unblemished. Now, being unblemished is a term directly related to the Levitical laws concerning ritual sacrifice. Neither could a blemished priest offer a sacrifice, nor could a blemished offering be used. So the relationship between the sixth and the seventh attributes of the 144,000 most likely is that because they spoke no false prophecies, they did not become ritually blemished by acting wickedly against the covenant as explained back in Daniel chapter 11. So this information adds to the great length that this passage here in Revelation goes to in order to depict this 144,000 that have just arrived back to planet Earth at Mount Zion with their leader, the Lamb, as being all of them whole, complete, and ritually pure according to the law. We're going to pick up with verse 6 of Revelation chapter 14 next week.